Uh, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. And it means a lot to me that you would take some time out of your schedule to join me on the podcast. I'm actually in the middle of your book at the moment. I'm roughly about, I think, 110 pages in of Cancel This Book. Good title, by the way. Okay. And it was- Thank uh, you. <laughs> it's kind of- Abby ironic. Hoffman. Stole it from Abby Hoffman. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of ironic because- um. I went to libraries and bookstores and I couldn't find it. And I'm like, are people just taking this title seriously? Or <laughs> <laughs> I ended up just buying it on ebook. It's honestly my first ebook that I've ever read. I'm not usually, oh, wow. big, I'm not usually a big fan of reading things over I, a screen. I don't, you know, I, I either read things in paper or, or I do audio too, but I, I don't, I generally don't read things electronically. So. I've tried the whole audiobook thing, but usually if I do an audiobook, you're usually doing something else. And I find if I do that, I struggle to completely tune in. Whereas if I'm, I agree. If, if That's I'm on a problem, if I'm on a book, I know it's me in the book. I'm tuned in. No, I think that's generally true. It's generally true. I, I, I like it when I'm driving though, sometimes, but in any case. Yeah, that makes sense. So, what originally drove you to cancel culture in the first place? Well, as I say in the book, it was inspired by true events in my city of Pittsburgh. Uh, there was a long-term, long-time peace activist here named Molly Rush. She's mm -hmm. still in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And uh, someone I've known for 30 years. And she helped, for, um, amongst many other things, she helped to found the Thomas Merton Center in Pittsburgh, which is a peace and justice group, which has been here for over 50 years, which is so that makes it one of the oldest peace centers of its kind in the United States. And she's been an activist her whole life, uh, mostly around, you know, peace issues, anti-nuclear issues, but also around racial justice issues. I mean, she, you know, any struggle that's happening, she has been involved in. Um, in any case, in um, the summer of spring or summer of 2020, when at the height of the George Floyd protest in the United States, I assume people in Australia know about George Floyd and the protests that followed the racial justice protests. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we um, had some protests here as well. Yeah. She um, on Facebook, she reposted, you know, just simply clicked share a meme uh, that that was a picture of Martin Luther King. And it said, never looted, never rioted, change the world, which, you know, I could see why people might be mildly offended by that or not like that. But in any case, she shared it. People immediately jumped on her on facebook she got mobbed on facebook attacked as a racist she quickly took it down she apologized but that was not enough people clamored for her for a bigger punishment for her and the thomas merton center which again she helped to found um the current leadership or the current leadership at that time they put out an open letter that they posted on facebook and send to all sent to all their members including me saying that because of that one post that she took down and apologized for, they could no longer associate themselves with her. 
And they took her name off the website, which had been there indicating she was a co-founder of the Merton Center. And they proceeded to disassociate themselves from her, which I felt, number one, was completely outrageous. It was not justified by what happened. I thought it was terribly unfair to her. By the way, she's in her 80s. Like, you know, she's in the eve of her life is the truth of it. The autumn of her years, as we say. And to treat someone like that, who's done so much to treat them so badly over so little that upset me and, and inspired me to write about this issue. But the other thing that happened and it was very predictable is basically it destroyed the Thomas Merton center because and predictably, because certainly the older old timers from the Merton Center, by the way, they're, and those are the people who have money because the younger generation has no money. So these are the people bankrolling the Thomas Merton Center. They all left because they all supported Molly and they were all horrified by what happened. So they left, they stopped contributing and the Thomas Merton Center, it still exists, but it's a shell of what it used to be. It has no um, profile in this town anymore. When there's major demonstrations, and we're having some now over Palestine, one or two of their people will show up. When it used to be that the Tom, it was the Thomas Merton itself that would have been organizing those rallies. It's basically a non-entity now, and that was predictable that that would happen. They not only gravely hurt her, but they also shot themselves in the foot. And that's what led me to write the book. Because, I mean, as I explained in the book, I, I've seen this happen too often. I've talked to people from other cities who's, who've seen this happen, where the, the left and progressives basically eat their own. And in the process, they destroy what they're actually trying to work for. And a lot of times I think that's by accident in the sense that it's done by overzealous, though possibly well-meaning people, Though I do think there's times when it may be purposeful where people um, there's no doubt that groups get infiltrated by in U.S. intelligence, you know, personnel by the FBI and stuff. And I, I, I have no doubt that sometimes that that's at play that, you know, it's it's purposefully destroyed. But I'll just assume for the most part it's done by overzealous people. But in any case, the result's the same, and that is that 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 it, it has crippled the left in the United States. Uh, there is really no left to speak of in the United States anymore, and that's a big reason for it, because the left has devolved into identity politics and, and into the politics of the personal, and they've they've just forgotten what they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish at all, right? And that's why I, write, why I wanted to write the book. It's directed towards progressives to say, don't do this. You're killing yourselves. You're killing the movement. And that's it. So that, that's, that's what led me to do it. When do you think progressive became non-progressive? At what point in time? Because I'm thinking back in the 80s, you know, we had um, the gay rights movements and stuff like that. And that's completely understandable. You know, gays have, should have the right to get married and should have the right to be with each other. That's completely fine. I don't see anything wrong with that. But when did it get to the point where people just wanted whatever deemed they felt necessary? And if you denied it, you were basically a tyrant. Yeah, well, it's hard to 
put your finger on it. I think the process of it began in the late 60s and early 70s with the postmodernist movement, which, by the way, we know that while the CIA did not create that movement, we know that it supported it and bankrolled some postmodernist magazines like the Paris Review. The CIA saw it for what it was, that it was an antidote to Marxism and that it could be used to help derail the left. And, and that did happen in part because, yeah, I mean, the intelligence agencies supported the movement, but also it was organic as well. It did appeal to a lot of intellectuals, again, as a kind of counterweight to Marxism, which was at least at that time more popular, but has become much more unpopular as time has gone on. And again, it became the politics of individuals, the politics of identity over class and uh very much it's a creature of the west it's very much a disease of the west of the western mind and over time it captured the left in the united states um when it really captured it is hard to say but i would i would say i would date it back probably to after the the beginning of the iraq war in 2003 which was the last time at least up till now, that we had major peace demonstrations in 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 the West, um, and I think it was again some of it was organic, but some of it I do think was very much pushed by corporations which embraced the postmodernist identity based movements, promoted them, also the Democratic Party really beginning with Bill Clinton, but really taking off with Obama. Um, where people, the, the again, the liberal left groupings uh, became okay with war, frankly, because Obama was the one fighting it and Clinton was fighting it. And they justified it on the basis that they were the lesser of the evils. So they kind of went along with it. They opposed Bush's war, his wars in Iraq, but again, they weren't willing to oppose Obama's war in Libya, for example. Um, so they kind of got inured to that and, and again, began to focus more on the, the identity issues. And uh, and that, that just has continued over time. And strangely, too, the Trump presidency kind of accelerated it, oddly. Uh, because of the reaction to Trump, um, people, the left and liberals hated Trump so much that they also hated, they, they decided to hate the good things about him, like the fact he wanted to be friends with Russia, the fact that he talked about ending our endless wars. Now, he didn't do much in that direction, but like that should have been something embraced by progressives, but they didn't do it because it was Trump. Trump was the messenger on that that they didn't like and Russiagate of course which was a democratic creation uh, that took off with liberals and, and many in the left and that of course bred in irrational hatred for Russia which again led to this kind of war hunger amongst the liberal left um, and again one of the things they were convinced to hate Putin about was that he was not deemed progressive on on some of the diversity issues and so 
imperialism became kind of masked in this it it it, it began to very consciously mask itself in progressive identity politics and counter-opposing the United States to countries like Russia, which were seen as backwards in terms of LGBT issues and, and other things. And that therefore we would now fight in the world to defend those issues against countries like Russia. And again, that appealed to liberals in the left, which was bizarre to me, of course. Uh, again, imperialism has always found things to justify itself. Human rights, which again, everyone supports human rights. And I, everyone, you know, decent people support LGBT rights, okay? Uh, but those things should not justify war, right? But they, I think the le a lot in the left and certainly liberals went along with it. And there's this, have you seen this very interesting CIA recruitment video? No. Where this uh, Latin woman, uh, she's the star of the CIA recruitment video. And she says, I'm a cis Latin woman, blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, and she's talking about why she joined the CIA. As if the CIA was going to advance the interest of Latin women who, you know, I think she was lesbian in it, in it maybe too, and that they were going to advance gay rights and they were going to be advance the rights of Latinas and people of color. And that was the recruitment video. That was real. That was not fake. And so you saw this was the best expression of the empire now donning itself in the flag, we'll say the rainbow flag even, you know, to justify its cruelty around the world. And this worked. This this a lot of liberals and, and a lot of people on the left bought into that. I think quite foolishly. Um obviously the US supports some of the most anti-LGBT uh uh regimes in the world, including Saudi Arabia and Ukraine itself. Um just to name a couple. Uh, but people just overlook that, you know, so I don't know, I've probably gone on too long, but there's, you know, the process has been a kind of slow, not linear process, but again, dating back to the late 60s, early 70s, which again, in the US, and by the way, we know that whatever happens in the US spreads everywhere. If the US catches a cold, if the US sneezes, the world catches a cold, particularly the Western world. Right. So these things tend to filter outwards towards Europe and Australia, New Zealand, um, a little after the U.S. begins this process. Right. But the other thing I really did mention, did not mention, is that, you know, the movement of the 60s in the U.S., which was had a huge anti-war aspect and had a huge kind of Marxist leftist aspect to it also had other aspects to it which were more individualistic like the hippie movement right which were more about drugs and sex and and individual expression and those things of course were very heavily promoted in popular culture were very much co-opted by corporate culture by rock and roll, right? There were some aspects of rock and roll which were a little anti-establishment, 
But then you had, a, I think, a large current of rock and roll and popular mu music, which more embraced this more individualistic hippie type culture. And that was a culture that grew as the left declined and which took over. And that was a perfect kind of, there was a perfect, postmodernism was a per, yeah, postmodernism, which we discussed, was a perfect uh, philosophy for that aspect of the movement. And it's that movement that took over. And we always say that those people who were hippies in the 60s and early 70s became the stockbrokers of the 80s and 90s, right? And, th and th there was not a contradiction for them because they weren't leftists, truthfully. They weren't Marxists. They were into individual, um, individual self-promotion and gratification. And so making a lot of money didn't that didn't contradict what they were all about, you know. And, and you know, and I, I think about this picture, which I think was so apt. Of John Lennon and Yoko Ono, you know, they had this bedding for peace. So they they stayed in a, in a nice hotel and had a bed in for peace where they their protest was staying in bed, which was ridiculous. OK. And there's a great photo of them preparing for their bed in the preparation was standing there watching the maid make their bed. Okay. And this kind of, to me, this was emblematic of the hippie movement, right? Which was not based in the working class. That was more about, again, individualistic expression, which again, could, could go along with being incredibly wealthy as the course the Beatles became and not very knowledgeable or insightful, right? I mean, John Lennon, I talk a lot about rock. I'm big. I love rock and roll. Okay. I'm a bit, but I was a bigger Stones fan. I'm a bigger Stones fan, but they, I, the same critiques could be made of them too. But point is, and I love the Beatles. I love their music, but like John Lennon's anti-war stances were, you know, based in in philosophies and political knowledge that weren't even needy right he wasn't a great intellectual and he didn't have a great knowledge of the world and in fact <clears throat> some interviews of him were absolutely embarrassing the way he discussed world events because he didn't know know much about it. and you know you may or may not know one of the things he did in the 60s was actually give a bunch of uh um a bulletproof vest to the police of Chicago, one of the more repressive police forces in the United States, um, because he didn't have a philosophy that was very clear. He didn't have an ideology, you know, neither did Bob Dylan for that matter, you know, even though he has some great anti-war songs and all that. But so that popular culture, which kind of led, helped, well, both led to and was led by the movements of the 60s, right? They were very much symbiotic and very, you know, intertwined. They weren't very well informed and intellectual and therefore were very easily manipulated, I think, into being becoming almost the opposite of themselves. Um, and we see this time and time again. I mean, the, the capitalism is excellent at, at co-opting what used to be progressive movements, right, into their own. 
and uh, making things their opposite. Of course, Marx talked about that, these dialectical relationships. And, um, and again, maybe I'm being too philosophical, but I think people do have to understand the philosophical roots of all of this. That it didn't come out of nowhere. And uh, well, I do think what people thought were progressive things weren't that progressive, right? As I've gotten older, you know, when I was a kid, I thought the Stones and the Beatles were like, hey, man, they were sticking it to the man. In the end, they were the man. They became a bunch of billionaires. They became the man. They weren't always the man, but they became the man. And if you don't see that, if you don't understand that, you're going to be lost because that's what capitalism does. And, uh, you know, um, anyways, that's some of the dynamics of all this. And that's what led us to where we are today with the cancel culture. And again, this real overemphasis on individual identity. You know, how I identify myself, my identity is the most important thing in the liberal left in the West. Not fighting imperialism, not fighting for socialism, not defending the poor, but my defending my identity and your individual identity. That's what's important. Well, that's a losing. That's that's a that's a loser strategy. If you want to build social change, I mean, if you want to do something else, fine. But it's not a recipe for changing the world, and it won't. And it's not. And uh, the fact that many in the left are really focused on that means that the left is headed headed into a dead end, in my view. You've left me a lot to unpack there. Um, I think the perfect analogy for progressiveness, I guess, if you want to use your uh, 60s. So in the 60s, you obviously had the uh, Woodstock, which was basically, as you spoke about, just about love, sex, drugs kind of thing. There was no real right. viol- there was no real violence involved. But then if you fast forward to the 90s when they had the Woodstock, it was just aggression and fighting and destruction. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was and I suppose that's to me the perfect look upon how progression has changed because if you look at what they were fighting for in the 60s, which is basically just the anti-war culture, um Timothy Leary stated, what was it, uh, tune in, drop out, and uh, I suppose he's not the perfect person to quote because he was kind of the one that sort of destroyed. Yeah, but I mean, he's part of it, and he, and he he was promoting LSD, which, was, by the way, was the thing the CIA was promoting at the same time um, through its, uh, through its um, um, I may forget the term, but they had a... Um, kind of a mind control operation they were trying to promote yeah and it, it based on lsd and again timothy leary ended up kind of helping promote all that stuff mm. was that operation mk ultra i'm pretty sure that was it was mk ultra thank you i yeah. forgot the term it was mk ultra yeah and the speculation that um i'm pretty sure there's a book on this with uh charles manson possibly being the front runner of that so apparently now I'm going to butcher this, but they had Charles Manson, who was actually given these individuals LSD. And the reason he it took so long for him to get properly arrested was because he was always getting broken out of jail by the government. Right. Now, Yeah, that he was working somehow with the CIA. Yeah. 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 And then fast forward to, I guess you could say, social media, 
which basically gave everyone a microphone. Now I don't know. Right. I, I don't know how. Uh, it's a bit of a funny topic because everyone should have a voice, but social media is a it's a place where it's non-human. So instead of having face-to-face -face interactions, people just tend to type stuff and what can be misconstrued as racism by people thought Molly Rush was being racist, but she really wasn't. It was just completely misconstrued. So right. it's, it's very easy to do this over social media and how we control that, I don't know, because at the same time, then that kind of interferes with freedom of speech. Um, what are your feelings on social media and the deplatformization we've been seeing over the Yeah, well that's troubling. And again, we know that that a lot of the deplatforming is actually is being pushed by the state. We know that Twitter and Facebook have worked very closely, hand in glove, with, with intelligence agencies in the US, the FBI first and foremost, but also the CIA. Um under their directive, they have censored people and deplatformed people um, who have, you know, most notably who were have been critical of the U.S. support for Ukraine, for example, uh, voices that are supportive of Palestine, um, and also those who challenged the lockdowns um, during the coronavirus. Um, we know that 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 the state has been working with those social media platforms to to censor people uh and again the irony is a lot of liberals have gone along with that have cheerleaded that censoring particularly during covid believe that people should be censored for questioning the lockdowns questioning masking um did not want to have a debate over those issues and again strangely the liberals kind of were okay with that and also largely okay with censoring people critical of the Ukraine policy, because, again, they had bought into the Russiagate lies that somehow Trump colluded with Russia to become president. And so they were glad to buy into the war in Ukraine against Russia, and they were glad to censor people who had a different view on. It. And so strangely, again, the liberals who historically had been very protective of free speech rights became some of the most censorious people, not only in on social media, but also in their daily lives, um, which I've witnessed. Maybe you have too in Australia, you know. Um, and it just shows how well, again, the corporate world and and the state apparatus have manipulated things to, again, turn people who were interested in free rights, uh, free speech, to be against that, you know. So, and of course, social media beyond all that has become a platform for essentially witch hunts it's kind of the modern day the modern day you know pitchforks and torches that were used you know against the witches in in salem it's now social media where you mob people on social media for saying the wrong things trying to drive them out of social media trying to destroy their occupation their reputations which I discuss in the book. So again, this is not anything new, but it's a new way to do it. And it's a more effective way and it can be done in seconds, right? Mm. You don't have to go organize a mob of people to do it. Y you can do it almost immediately 
in real time on social media. And that's what makes it dangerous in the sense that it can happen so quickly before people even think about it. And, and before you know it, someone's reputation's ruined. Um, now, again, I'm not for censoring people. I wouldn't say the state or the social media should say prevent people from doing that. But what I urge in my book is, is restraint, self-restraint. That again, if you care about social change, and 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 people's ability to speak freely you should not be engaged in mob activity on social media you're definitely right there's always been ostracism in human history um i think you could go back to the fifth century oh, i forget the name now but they basic there was a town where they would have voting where they would ostracize or banish someone for 10 years but then they were welcomed back but the whole town would vote it wouldn't just be a you're out of here kind of thing right um, whereas yeah as you're saying now you can pretty much just be deleted off a platform where you have a voice within seconds that the, there is no voting it's just you're out of here and that's it um i think probably the biggest name to be deplatformed de is donald trump and yeah while... thrown off of twitter yeah. yeah. And what's even crazier is I'm pretty sure he started his own, not too sure if it was a social media or something like Reddit or, but he started something similar to that of his own. And you couldn't even find that in a Google search anymore. Yeah. I don't, I, I couldn't even, I forget what the name of it is. I've never visited it. I don't know anything about it, but you're right. And again, whatever you think of Donald Trump, even if you disagree with everything he said, he was president of the United States. He, he and even in his re-election bid, he got something like 54 million votes. Like, you should be very slow to deplatform someone like that. Like, obviously, there's millions of people who do care what he has to say, and there is a societal interest in what he has to say, even if you don't like it. In fact, even if, especially if you don't like it, you should know what he's saying because he is speaking for a lot of people. And he's very influential. So it's good to know what he's talking about, even if you want to counter that, right? Or especially if you want to counter it. And I think that people were, many people were excited that he got kicked off of Twitter. It was very disturbing. You know, I, I don't think that that was good for a civil society. It was not good for democracy. Um but people, again, it's strangely, a lot of liberals don't care about those values. I saw Rob Reiner. Do you know Rob Reiner? He's the movie director. Yeah. And he was in the the famous sitcom called All in the Family. He's a famous movie director. He directed Stand By Me, Misery, amongst other things. Uh, famous liberal Democrat. And he, he tweeted fairly recently. He said, in order to save democracy... Trump should not be allowed. He should be forbidden to run for president and there should be no third party candidates. What? How is that saving democracy? Right. I mean, but that's the viewpoint of many liberals. Now we're going to destroy democracy to save it. It's like during Vietnam, we're going to save the village by destroying it. That is the mentality now. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense at all. Um, I'm just trying to wrap my head around that one. Yeah, that does that does not make any sense. It's it's crazy to me that the instead of wanting to hear what the opposing side has to say so you can argue against it, you just completely cancel it out. 
where where does civil rights step in to this now? And what I mean by that is, do you ever think civil rights will have a hand in social media? Considering how big social media is becoming in our culture now, do you think civil rights will ever have a hand in social media and deplatforming people? I guess I don't totally understand the question. So do you think civil rights will ever have a hand in deplatforming people in terms of it's your civil right to be able to have a voice on social media. Okay. So do you think, Oh yeah. Well, I, I would argue that certainly I think there should be some legal protection for people's uh, speech rights on social media, especially for two reasons. One, because, and there's been analogous cases like in, in, in us jurisprudence, they talk about the town hall and virtual town halls are like, they, they've compared at times shopping centers to town halls, and therefore people should have civil rights there, even if the shopping center is privately owned, though a lot of those cases have kind of been whittled away at. But certainly the analogy holds that because, one, they're just such major avenues for expression that, that it should be protected, but also because the state is so involved in those social media platforms, as I mentioned, as we know, because the FBI and CIA are so involved in censoring people on those platforms, that means there's state action. And when there's state action in a country like the U S that has a first amendment, people have a right of free speech against that state intervention to stop them from speaking. So, I don't know if this has been litigated very well, but I do think you're going to see. Well, actually, there is a case now pending in Missouri. I think it is the state of Missouri versus Biden that's going to start determining, you know, the state's ability, again, to muck around in in various avenues, including social media, to censor people. And I'm hoping the courts will come down on saying that that cannot be done, that the state cannot do that. Joe Biden is another crazy example to me of how radical the left are willing to go to go against Trump. And what I mean by that is like, look, Donald Trump was not the best president, but, and I'm not saying he was a great president, but Joe Biden, you'll watch his interviews, you'll watch his press conferences. He can't really form a sentence or a coherent form of words without tripping over himself almost. And it's, to me, it looks almost pretty obvious that he has, I'm not saying he has dementia, but, or some sort of mental lapse, but it seems that way. And it's crazy. Something's to, going on. And it's crazy fully, to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy yeah. to me that he is president right now and no one stepped in and said, Hey, something's going on here. Yeah. And, and you will say like, if I said to a liberal, uh, this often happens. If you go to talk to a liberal, a Democrat, and say, boy, do you think Joe Biden may have dementia? They're, they're like, that's right wing talking points. It's like, well, that might be true, but it also might be true. It's right wing talking points, but also might be true as a matter of fact. Like the fact that it's, that it's right wing talking points doesn't make it untrue. Like, I'm sorry, we need to have this conversation. Is he does he have the mental capacity to to be president of a nuclear power? I mean. That is a legitimate question. And yet again, for many people, it's not a legitimate question. And as you say, they just follow this guy blindly out of hate. 
you know, irrational hatred for Trump. And Trump, and as far as I can tell, the Biden administration is leading us into World War III. And I'm not even saying that facetiously. I mean, whether in Ukraine or the Middle East, maybe in China, I mean, they, they seem to be leading us down the road of perdition. And the resistance to that amongst Democrats is very small. You know, uh, again, they almost would rather have a nuclear war than concede any ground of, of Biden's. And that's just insane. It's insane. But that's where we're at. I think people can say what they want about Donald Trump, but it was the working class that did vote for him. Obviously, he was creating more jobs and he was trying to include uh, more the working class during his first run as president, whereas, as you spoke about in your book, Hillary Clinton wasn't. Right. She denounced pretty much the wor white working class. Yes. Mm. Called so, them the deplorables. Yeah. So, and they make up most of society, the working class. Now, where, right. I'm, going, where I'm going with this is I feel personally that during the COVID time, and this is pretty much when Joe Biden was president now, the working class were the most affected. And there wasn't really much done for the working class. No. So where do the leftists stand there? And it was kind of weird in Australia because we, while we do have a right to protest, there was also a law brought in saying it's unlawful to gather in groups. So while people have a right to protest, they don't have a right to gather in groups. That's kind of contradictory. No, it's very bizarre. You, yeah. you can't go to church. Uh, but, yeah, you could protest over certain issues, not over COVID or the lockdowns. That's verboten. But you could protest over certain issues. But, yeah, you couldn't protest over others. And you, and you couldn't gather publicly, as you say. There was many irrational things that were going on. There, right. And again, I, I know Australia was one of the stricter countries in terms of all that. But in the U.S., you had these things where, like, you could you had to wear your mask into a restaurant, but you could take it off once they seated you. Well, then what good is it, right? Um, there is just strange things. And that what we know, this is a fact. No one disputes what I'm going to say here. During COVID, the way the lockdowns were carried out, and it's, of course not by accident because the ruling class determined how they'd be carried out, resulted in the rich getting $4 trillion richer and the poor getting $4 trillion poorer. It resulted in the greatest redistribution of wealth upwards in the history of the world. And it wasn't by accident. So whatever you think about what happened, it was carried out in the most unjust and unfair way imaginable that resulted in that wealth transfer upwards. And again, the, the, the fact that liberals and many in the left and I'm a leftist. Can I be clear? I mean, you can see the flag behind me. Here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't hide it. Um, the fact that they didn't care about that. And that's what I write about in the book. Again, the other thing, all this was happening at once. And all of it was, some of it was horrifying. Some of it was just annoying. But one thing I was annoyed with was my fellow, my friends even, and my, my fellows in society again, who tend to be more intellectual, liberal, left, thinking that they were righteous, that they were doing a thing of virtue by staying home and having working people bring stuff to them. 
They thought that was a thing of virtue. Oh, I'm a good guy because I'm staying home and this poor working class guy is working overtime to bring me food and bring me shit from Amazon. And I'm a good guy. I'm sorry. No, you're not a good guy for doing that. I'm not even saying you're a bad guy, but there's no virtue in that. And what about that guy? And we know that, by the way, a lot of those guys bringing stuff were tipped a lot less during COVID. Why? Because the people paying didn't have to interact with them, right? Because they, they were supposed to just leave your stuff at the door, bow and go away. So I didn't have, you know, you didn't have to see that guy who brought your food. Therefore, I'm not going to tip because I don't, you know, I, there's no pressure, peer pressure to do that. So not only were they, you know, virtue signaling by staying inside they weren't even tipping these poor people i mean it was outrageous what happened was outrageous and it was wrong and yet if you said that you were shunned right if you question any of what was happening and so much of it was crazy you were a bad person you were just supposed to go along with it um and I'm not I'm not the type of person who can do that. I just I just if I bristle at that, at, at, at that injustice, the injustices that were happening. And again, some of the just downright irrationality of it all. Um, and we still haven't come to turn societal terms with all that. There's not been an accounting for that. And that's disgusting and sad. We never had a, a debate about it when it was happening and, and we haven't had a fair debate about it now like should that have happened if this happened if we have another pandemic should it happen again should it happen the way it did should the big walmarts of the world be allowed to stay open but you're you're shutting little mom and pop pop gross you know bodegas and um barber shops and music stores does that make any sense is that fair uh, in any case, that's a fair thing to question, but, but a lot of people didn't view that as a fair thing to question at the time. I had a cardiologist on my podcast, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, who specifically looks into vaccines and looks, looked at the vaccines and the effects of the heart and so on. And he was telling me, cause he's looked into it so much that if anything, the lockdowns and us staying inside were affected us more than not locking down at all, especially towards our immune system. He says it was completely a completely absurd act by the government to keep us inside. Um, and I'm, I'm I'm failing to see how we, we we don't question this more. And what I mean by that is we don't question the lockdowns anymore. I mean, lockdowns was only what we were in lockdown two years ago probably two years ago was we started coming out of yeah, lockdowns. Yeah, 220 into 221. Yeah, so two years. Yet we've automatically forgotten that the peaceful protests we were having against lockdowns was met with police brutality. And we've, right. we've automatically forgotten that in the span of two years. And I'm struggling to see how that has happened. Well, because, again, people didn't care. Largely, liberals were happy those people were being shut down. 
I mean, they they thought those were bad people. Though the people who said these lot who protested that the lockdowns were bad were vilified as bad people. The truck drivers in Canada who protested over were deemed fascists, and their some of their bank accounts were frozen by the Canadian government without what? due process. Oh, absolutely. In fact, there was a famous case that uh, this old lady, she gave five dollars, you know, via like PayPal to the trucker strike. They froze her bank account because she gave them five dollars. And again, liberals were applauding this. Oh, you're great because those are all a bunch of fascists. Um, it's insane. It's insane. And and um, again, I talk about that in the book and I, I just... Uh, and by the way, you know, I mean, that book cost me a lot. I mean, I wanted, it probably was the coup de grace of my marriage. Seriously, my wife hated that book, hated I was <laughs> writing it. We ended up getting divorced. Oh, you know, I don't want to say oh, just over that. That wouldn't be fair. There are other issues and, you know, but that was probably the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, she literally stopped sleeping with me over that book. Um, it's, it, it, you know, but. I, I just had to write it and I, I had to say what I said because I was so infuriated by it and also infuriated by the people around me who I just thought were acting so irrationally. I, I, I couldn't deal. I can't deal with that. I don't know. That's just my nature. Like I bristle at that. Um, And th that you felt you couldn't even talk about it. You couldn't even express quietly in a private conversation that you didn't like the masks or you thought it was weird to have to mask up when you were walking outside in the fresh air. Right. Or again, at restaurants, but not when you were sitting down. And um, it was very strange. It was a very strange time. And I, I thought that again, the liberal left really reacted very badly during it and betrayed themselves. And strangely, it was conservatives largely who were, who were saying, Hey, we don't think this is right. And those people were vilified, you know, and I think that they should have asked questions. I think everyone should have been asking questions. But um, there you go. There you go. Um, that's how tyranny wins. I'm sorry by not asking questions. And I don't want to live in a tyrannical situation. And uh, I hope that that message in my book got across, you know, but I think there what you COVID, go. I think what COVID really showed me is being labeled as the same as being canceled. And what I mean by that is if you had anything to say against the lockdowns, the vaccine, or just even an opinion that opposed what was deemed the norm at the time, then you were an anti-vaxxer. You were right. It's you were, you were basically just this negative individual that needed to be shunned out. Even though what's strange to me is, so to me, what freedom of speech means is being able to say what you feel is not right that the government is is implementing, which sounds about right. In, but yes, if if free speech means anything at all, it should mean that yes. But all these COVID things were government implemented, so shouldn't you be able to say something against it without being cancelled? I think so. I think if you couldn't speak about that, what can you speak about? During that period, that was the most important societal issue in every country was how were we going to handle this? 
Were there going to be lockdowns? If there are, how are they going to be carried out? Will masks be required? If so, when and how? Should vaccines be required? These were important policy issues that needed full-throated debate. And none of those things, ha- none of those debates happened. Those were shut down. And that's a disgrace. It's an absolute disgrace. Um, and again, there has not been a proper reckoning for all that, in my view. Where do you think, now I'm not right or left, I'm more in the middle. I can see both sides of the coin, and I think both sides have very good arguments. Um, so I don't sit right or left. But where do you think the left changed? So to me, the left was always about freedom of speech and mm-hmm. and human civil rights. But it seems to me it's changing a lot now. When yes. Do, where do you think that happened? I do think... Uh, I do think that particular change, I think, started to come when Trump was elected. So around 2016. And I do think it was in response to Trump. And, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us call it Trump derangement syndrome. The people's people hated Trump so much and hated his supporters so much, resented them so much that they were very tolerant of his supporters being censored. And that manifested that in the lockdown debate because it was largely, you know, again, conservatives and and, and Trump supporters who, you know, became publicly critical of all that. Um, and, and that's when people really got into high gear about willing to support censorship for the first time in their lives. At least that's how I view it. I think that's, and I don't think they've gone back. I think they got used to that, got used to supporting censorship and have not reversed themselves on that. So. Have you seen them ask for a more watered down version of the First Amendment? Well, yes, in the sense that, I mean, people haven't asked for a constitutional amendment to water it down, but it's it's being publicly debated. For example, after the uh, special military operations in Ukraine, it, it's being de- it, it began to be debated on Capitol Hill whether people expressing criticism of the U.S. policy towards Ukraine, whether they should be punished somehow with, again, the, maybe their bank accounts being frozen or seized. That's been openly discussed. Um, and again, certainly... And it was openly discussed whether people who are critical of vaccines and the lockdown should also be censored. So there has not been a discussion about changing the First Amendment or weakening it per se, but there have been debates about whether laws should be passed, despite the First Amendment, that would censor people on those certain issues. So thankfully, I think the courts have largely been good on this issue so far have not wanted to do that and not wanted to weaken the first amendment. But I do think, a, you know, huge attempts were made to do that. And I think, you know, some ground was made towards kind of prepping the population for that to happen, to, to prepare them for people to be censored on particular issues. So. Do you think this could be different from state to state in terms of the law passing? So for example, 
the way it would be in Texas compared to the way it would be in California? Well, they could try, but the problem they have is that the First Amendment is a federal right, right? So they could try that, but, you know, those laws may be overturned under the First Amendment, which applies in all 50 states, mm. thankfully. Um, yes, so we'll see. But, but you know, thankfully, that's a, that's a federal protection. And hopefully will not allow state individual states to abridge that, you know. One thing I really did like that you pointed out in your book, and I completely forgot about this, is not the January 6th um, rights of the, the storming of the Capitol, um, but the vandalization of historical monuments that the right. other side were doing. I completely forgot about that. Um, because the January, right. the January 6th situation has been like stuck in my brain so much that I just completely forgot the vandalization of those monuments and i really liked how you pointed out the hypocrisy between the two that right the people yeah that, that one was so virtuous and so righteous but to me the problem with that is you got to look at that individual during that time period okay would were they doing good for their time that's that's how it stands out to me look that person today they would not stand that they wouldn't with those values that they have but in their time they may have been considered more progressive. Well, that's right. And also maybe they were progressive in their time and even progressive for this time, but not in all aspects of their life, right? Like part of what I critique in the cancel culture is this is this demand for 100% purity. His, any human being, including historic figures, are complex, and they people may have done great things on one aspect and been backwards on others. And again, are we going to cancel out all of the good things that they did? Um, and who decides that? That's the other point. The mob, does the mob get to decide that? Or if you have a monument that's there, um, should it, if it's going to be removed or not, shouldn't that at least be up to like the representatives of the people through hearings and discussions again rather than the mob deciding oh we don't like this guy the statue's coming down or the plaque's coming down and i think i mentioned like people were trying to remove like statues of walt whitman the poet and uh even that the stat a statue of lincoln that that actually freed slaves raised money to build because there were you know there was a slave being seen kind of, you know, below Lincoln, being free by Lincoln. They didn't like that aspect of it, but whatever. So you're going to take that Lincoln monument. And again, you're going to decide, you people on the street, you're going to decide to take that down um, on your own. And and that was crazy in my view. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you something. I, I, I was been in Russia. And by the way, I'll have to end very soon. I've, I've been going for like four hours on these interviews today. But um, I was in Russia recently and I was very surprised, pleasantly surprised. At how many monuments to Lenin still stand there and how many hammers and sickles you still see. A lot of remnants of the Soviet Union are still very much in public view. And I asked some people about that. I said, wow, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they still, I said, I see monuments of Lenin everywhere. I said, this surprised me. I did not expect this. And they just responded, 
Well, that's part of our history. We don't take down things like that. That That's part of our history. And whether we like Lenin or we don't like Lenin, like it was put there for a reason. And at least it could be a sense, you know, um, something to debate about the legacy of him. We could debate whether he's good or bad or good and bad. But that's our history. We're, we don't go around taking statues down. And I thought that was very interesting, you know. And obviously that's the prevailing view or those statues wouldn't still be there. And even not just that, they're not just still there, they're still taken care of. In fact, in St. Petersburg, the big Lenin statue in front of uh, the Finland station, which is a very historic thing, Lenin came back to Russia to lead the revolution, came into the Finland station. There's a big statue of him there. Well, I guess some group, some terrorist group or whatever tried to blow it up and did damage it. And the city fathers, and this was after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the city fathers, you know, had to decide, well, should we just take it down? And they decided, no, no. In fact, they got it repaired. They said, well, that's part of our history. That's an important, the Finland station and Lenin's, you know, that's an important thing. And we're going to leave it there. In fact, we're going to rebuild it. So I think that was very interesting. And instructive again i uh, for maybe people here so um you also can't whitewash your history like that's not good either you can't pretend things didn't happen you can't pretend slavery didn't happen you can't pre pre pretend the genocide of of the of the indigenous people didn't happen um and you can't eradicate every m memory of that that's not good for even from a progressive point of view that's not good you know so anyway, th those are my thoughts, and I'm sticking to them. I think um, all those thoughts are extre uh, extremely agreeable, uh, personally. Um, I think the same thing should be done with religion, personally. Like uh, most religions will today talk about peace and stuff, but they have a every religion has a radical and violent history, but they pretend it doesn't, it didn't happen, but it did. And I think. <clears throat> I, th I think it should be taught. I think it's actually very human to say, hey, we did come from this violent past, but we've learned from it. You know what I mean? We, we, we've learned to to move forward and say this wasn't correct. And look, I'm not a religious individual myself. I sit very much in the middle. I'm not religious or non-religious. I'm just very much on the fence. I don't know whether there is a God or not, but I think it's very human to take a text and live by it so heartedly that you become violent. And I'm talking human history here, not right. present, not present day. And I think it would be very, it'd be very, it'd be very uh, progressive of those religions to say, we did this and we messed up and we realized yeah. that, but. And we don't want to do it again. So no. we got we to gotta remember we did do it. So we don't do it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where do you think truth, where do you think truth will lie in our society moving forward with the way things are looking today? Well, it's a good question. I, I don't know. I think, you know, the, if the state is trying to be more censorious of the truth, I think they want to conceal the truth to carry out things like the lockdowns to carry, they carried out to, to carry out wars based on lies. 
which pretty much all wars are, you know. Uh, but I do think there are people fighting to get the truth out, alternative media, and, and they're doing it largely on social media. So I do think, I hope the truth will prevail. I think you see it prevailing. You see it sneaking through. And I do think the truth will out. I think the truth will always out. The question is, is it, will it be outed in time? In time to prevent terrible, terrible crimes from happening. That's a bigger question. But in the end, it it will come out. When I think of truth, I think about your friend uh, Molly Rush. I was mainly thinking about it when I was reading that. Uh, I think it was in the first chapter of your book or second chapter of your book, you're mentioning Molly Rush. And my heart does go out for her because obviously she does mean very well. And that was just a accidental you know, misstep by her. And she apologized so many times for it. How many times can someone apologize before the mess before the message, you know, actually gets through? I mean, to me, especially today, someone to do something and they'll apologize for it, but then it doesn't seem like it's enough. Well, in fact, it seems like once you apologize, they, they double, they, they double, redouble their pounding of you because now you've admitted guilt so now we feel justified in attacking you so the, the apologies never help is the truth of it but they should you're right i mean and again as i argue in the book people have have i think we should allow everyone the chance of redemption because if you don't then why should people change like isn't the whole idea of being a political activist to change people's minds and change people's conduct why would i change my conduct if by changing my conduct, I don't get anything for it. You're still going to condemn me for what I did in the past. It doesn't make any sense, right? The whole reason you offer redemption is because you want people to change their conduct. And if they change it, you say, okay, you're back. You're good. Thank you. That's what we wanted. You don't say, well, you're still bad and fuck off. I mean, that's ridiculous. Especially when it's someone like Molly Rush, who's not a criminal, who's always lived a good life. Like, you can't offer her redemption for what I think is kind of a naive kind of gesture on her part. I mean, that's just silliness. Um, and again, if, you know, again, going in, I was raised Roman Catholic, you know, and, uh, you know, there's a line in, in, in the Our Father, what is, forgive our sins as we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good advice. If you want forgiveness, you need to offer forgiveness. And that's kind of obvious. So in your own interest, of want, if you want redemption for your own shortcomings, which we all have, you have to offer it for others. That's just very simple. One of my favorite quotes is to err is human. I love that quote because yeah, it's a great quote. Humans make mistakes all the, the forgive time. Forgive is the divine. By, by the way, I think that was Karl Marx that said that. I may not. I really? may be mistaken. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not too sure he said it. I I just heard it by passing a few years ago, and yeah. I've just or maybe Alexander Pope. Yeah, maybe Alexander Pope. I'm not sure. We'll have to look into it. It's a beautiful thing about about the internet. We could find out in a second, but yeah. And I think cancel culture needs to really look at that quote because cancel culture, yes. to me personally, doesn't have a place in society. No, no, not in a society you want to function. In a proper way, that's for sure. Do you think that as long as Donald Trump is running for president, cancel culture will always, or this radical cancel culture will always be around, or do you think it is just here to stay, no matter what? Now, 
Well, the problem is once these things are released in society, they don't go away easily. I, I'd like to think it will subside, but let's be honest. We've has, had these periods before, again, in U.S. history, we had the witch hunts. We had the Red Scare in the 19-teens. We had McCarthyism in the 1950s. This will probably pass, but something else will come later, you know. It's something you have to fight against all the time. There's always going to be mobs. There's always going to be attempts to limit people's speech. And those of us who care about speech and freedom need to be vigilant and need to always fight for freedom. That That's all. That's always going to be the case. There'll always be another reason to clamp down on people's speech. And there will always be a reason to fight for speech. And they're fighting for these people that they deem as uneducated to seek out some sort of education class that teaches them on these points of view, which I find, honestly, find intellectually belittling. Right. Yeah, no, it is. A lot of it is looking down on others. Yes, is inferior. Certainly the current counterculture is that. That is definitely an elitist movement against the working class. There's no question about that. Um and then maybe that's what troubles me the most. And that's what I mentioned in the book. Like, it's one thing to punch up, but to kick down against people, that I don't accept, you know. And to pretend some people cannot be educated or brought around, I don't go for that, you know. It, it does seem as though that people are mainly poking at people who aren't as, let's just say, higher up in the hierarchy of society. Yeah, I do think that. Yeah. They go after the low-hanging fruit. And a lot of it is the ability to feel like you're more powerful than other people. I mean, a lot of it comes from a very bad place. That's the other thing. People who do it claim to be virtuous, but really a lot of them are doing it out of spite and old-timey jealousy and old-timey kind of tribal, you know, notions that aren't good. And there needs to be honesty about that. A lot of those desires to mob and censor other people come from very bad places in the reptilian part of your brain. And uh, once you realize that, you realize it's not a good thing. What I'm also seeing a lot of, and I think it's a very dangerous thing to be happening, which is... So debating in college or university campuses to me is very, very healthy. Someone has an opinion, another person has an opinion. You talk about it. You can either agree to disagree or you conclude. It's a very healthy talking. But today, it just seems as though people are yelling at each other and trying to quiet the other opinion. So you can see video right. evidence of this where someone will be talking to an individual, but the other person will be screaming at them. Right. How, to me, I don't get how this could be happening within our education system, especially how you have now a lot of professors and teachers being canceled. For having yes, it. getting fired. Absolutely. And, and, and getting fired at the behest of the students. The students go to the administrators and partner with the administrators to get their professors fired because they don't like what they're saying. That's incredible. Um, that's very disturbing. And should not be allowed. You know, I saw an interesting thing they put out. I forget who put it out, but someone put out a list of the most 
um, kind of uh, the universities in the U.S. that have the worst free speech rights. And number one was Harvard. Harvard was considered the most censorious university. And I'm certainly I'm certain it's a censoriousness from the left, right? It's censoring people for raising questions that challenge the kind of liberal taboo subjects, trans ideology and, and things like that. Um, and that's ironic, isn't it? You know, you would think at Harvard to be the safest place in the world for free speech. And yet it's ranked the worst. So meditate on that for a while. Yeah. Well, when I think of Harvard, I just think of people who are very well intellectual, very well spoken and able to debate each other. I mean, that's just the way I, I see Harvard anyway. Harvard's always been one of those schools that are very hard to get into to me for that reason, because they right. hold people at such a high standard yet. Now they're coming out as the most like the school with the highest cancellation rate <laughs> right yeah no it's amazing that's where we're at dale look um look i, th I thank you for coming on the, the podcast today it, it does mean a lot to me i won't um take any more of your time because you've been busy all day by the sounds of it with your interviews but i do i do thank you for coming on would you like to plug any social media or books where people can learn about you and find you Yes, thank you. And thank you for this opportunity. I enjoyed it. I don't get a lot of it. Uh, I don't get a lot of interviews out of Australia. So it's nice to do this. Um, so you, they can go. Yeah, all my books are on Amazon. Um, uh, I have two publishers. My main one is Skyhorse Publishing. The other one's Clarity Press. And probably to find out about me and what I'm thinking uh, is probably best to go to my Twitter account at Daniel M. Kavalik. And uh, yeah, there you go. Dan, I thank you very much for coming on. And like you, I do hope that society can get rid of cancel culture pretty soon. I don't know if it'll happen in the next 10 years or so, but I do hope it is soon enough to where the damage is recoverable. Me too. And I think shows like this will help. So thank you, Dale. Thank you very much, Dan. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.